Sound Design Live. Welcome to Sound Design Live. I'm Nathan Lively, and this is part three in 110 questions about sound system tuning. Today we are talking about design. So question number 13 comes in from God's Will, who says, what are the factors to consider before designing a sound system? So God's Will, first of all, I just love the fact that you're asking this question because there's a big difference between people who do their work in a purely reactive manner and just wait for people to ask them for things or something to break or something to go wrong before they take action. And I know this because I was a mostly reactive sound engineer for a long time. I got burnt out at the place that I was working, so I think I just got lazy and bored. And it was only after working with other sound engineers who are a lot more successful and happier in their work that I noticed how proactive they were with their service. So the more you can anticipate the needs of your client in your show, the more time you'll save and the more taken care of your client will feel. So the answer to this question could take us all day to talk about, right? So my suggestion to you, God's will, is that you will sit down and write down all of the factors that you've determined to be the most important in the success of a show and its sound system in the past. What have you learned so far? Turn that into a checklist and use it before every event that you work on. So uh, some questions that I think are important that you might start with are, what is the program material? What is the size and location of the audience? And what resources do we have in terms of speakers and power? Okay, question 14 comes in from Megan. Megan says, what is the best DIY acoustic treatment for a room? Hey, Megan. So I have worked in two music venues that are small shoeboxes. Well, I've worked in a lot of music venues that are small shoeboxes, but I've worked in two that were not only really difficult to work in, but that also, due to someone's suggestion, decided to cover their entire ceiling and back wall with some absorption panels that they just screwed right into the wall. And those made a huge difference. Um, so I did try to reach out and find out what those were. I did not find out the name of the material. I didn't hear back from them. When I do, I'll email you and let, me, let you know. But my guess is that if you reached out to your local building supply store and told them what you were working on, they could probably guide you better than I can. So obviously, this is a permanent solution, though, right? We're screwing things into walls, uh, probably need some carpenters to help us. But it'd be great if we could just fill a room with temporary, freestanding, movable panels everywhere we go. But you'd need a whole lot of them to make a difference, right, in a typical event space. So what most people do is start by trying to control the loudest things on stage, like the drums and the amps. So you might try a drum shield or a guitar amp oscillation box. That's actually something you could carry with you. Question 15 comes from Andre, and Andre says, How to deal with room modes in small rooms? So Andre, similar to the last question, your first line of attack is acoustical. Can we change the architecture of the room? Can we put absorption on the walls? If not, what can we do with our speaker positioning? So come up with a bunch of tests to try. Are you using multiple mains? Try turning one off, move it around, use your audio analyzer to record everything you do to help you make a decision. Okay, question 16 comes from Martin. How do you maintain a clear and cohesive, balanced sound throughout a venue? So Martin, you do that by adhering to the principles of minimum variance that we talked about in part one of this series. 
do what you can so that the level and frequency response are as consistent as possible and that the sonic image matches what you see with your eyeballs. Who knows? Maybe it has nothing to do with you or the sound system. Maybe, at the end of the day, the noisy HVAC system is the biggest barrier to clear sound. So what can you do to help improve that? Okay, question 17. David says... How to determine where to place speakers in your space and how many speakers to use to get even coverage. So David, I think one thing you can do is start looking at everything in terms of doubling of distance. Since we know that every doubling of distance cuts our sound level in half, we can look around our room, find which parts of the audience are more than double the distance to a speaker compared to the nearest seat to that speaker, and know that we'll probably need another speaker to start its coverage there. Another idea that can help you is to start thinking about your speaker's coverage in terms of length and width. For example, if your main speaker has a horizontal coverage of 100 degrees and is 10 feet from the front row, then you can calculate that its coverage of that front row will extend for 16 feet. And this is something that we discuss in Pro Audio Workshop Seeing Sound, but you can also just open up Bob McCarthy's book and search for the sections on forward aspect ratio and lateral aspect ratio. Question 18 is from Fernando, who says, how do I choose the right speaker for the space? So Fernando, in terms of coverage on a basic level, you should choose narrow coverage speakers for narrow shapes and wide coverage speakers to fill wide shapes. And half the time, that's the best we can do with a limited inventory. But if you can pick any speaker, then divide the depth by the width of the coverage area, including the speaker, and that number is the forward aspect ratio, which you can convert to a coverage angle. In terms of power, it depends on the program material, and you really have to experience it in the room to know if it's right. But, you know, having too much power is never a problem. Number 19, Jennifer says, how to determine how many speakers you may need to fill X amount of space. So Jennifer, of course, this depends on what kinds of speakers, um, what kind of array you're going to deploy, and the you know idiosyncrasies of the space itself. But let's talk about the simple example of a single room covered by a point source array. Since we know that a single speaker can only cover a maximum range ratio of 1 to 2, then we can estimate that a range ratio of 1 to 2 to 1 to 3 will require at least two speakers in our coupled point source array. And a range ratio of 1 to 3 to 1 to 4 will require at least three elements, and so on and so on. So range ratio can help you quickly estimate how many speakers you'll need to fill a space. Number 20 comes from Micah. Micah says, when to use an array versus standard speakers flown. So Micah, I think the question you're asking here is when to subdivide. And we'll need to do that anytime we have a distance ratio of more than 1 to 2, um, our angular coverage does not match the space, or if we just need more power. Question number 21 comes from Rob, and Rob says, what is the weakest link in most small music venues? Amps, speakers, poor tuning, etc. So Rob, the weakest link in most small music venues is the architecture. It's the acoustics. It's the reflections turning our carefully crafted mix into mush. And as I mentioned earlier, I have worked at two music venues that put up a bunch of absorption, which helped, but this isn't going to help you with an event that you're working on today, right? So 
If I had to pick the next most common weakest link in small music venues, it would be speaker position and aim. Since we're in these small reflective rooms, it's really important to position and aim for control. So one of the most common things I see is long, narrow rooms with left-right mains, which are playing half into the wall, because I guess people just default to stereo in most situations, when what might work better is a mono main and a relay speaker farther down the room. Another thing I see a lot is asymmetrical rooms with symmetrical sound systems. So you probably know what I'm talking about because you've been in a long room that has a bar along the side sticking out, right? So the speaker on that side is only good for a few feet until it hits that bar. Yet we're playing both speakers as though they're covering the entire room. Question number 22 comes from Rune. How to set up in-fire sub system. So Rune, here's what you need. Three or more subs and a processing channel for each. Position them in a line, all facing the direction that you want their sound to sum together. Then with your measurement microphone in the front, measure each sub solo, phase aligning it with the sub in the rear. Because um, what you want is for them to all arrive in time in the front. And here are a couple of verification notes. Make sure you're not adding more than three milliseconds of delay to the closest speaker to the rear, six milliseconds to the second closest, and so on. If you are, you need to go back and reduce the spacing between them. Lastly, you want to verify that with all of them on, summation is maximized in the front. Okay, number 23 comes from R. Um, I really hope this person's name is just the letter R. That's awesome. How to maintain frequency and volume, all coverage with budget audio system. So the three things that come to mind when I think about working with cheaper speaker models are, number one, they don't sound the same when you drive them at low level versus high level. So I try to keep them distributed so that I don't need to drive them any harder than necessary. Number two, they don't have a very smooth axial response. And what I mean by that is that when I stand on axis with the speaker and then move left or right, it doesn't just slowly get quieter, the frequency response changes. So I have to keep that in mind during placement and maybe try to keep the audience within the smoothest coverage area. Number three, I'll probably need to spend more time on EQ on a cheaper speaker to tame its response anomalies. Sound design. Yeah.